Tate Chronicles now transmitting. Welcome to the Tate Chronicles on Healthcare Now Radio. And now, here's your host, Jim Tate. Good day, citizens of the free world from border to border, coast to coast, and to all the ships at sea, I bring you a warm welcome. This is your correspondent, Jim Tate, and thank you for tuning into the Tate Chronicles. Join me as we cut through the fog that exists at the leading edge of healthcare technology. My guest today is Holly Varnell, co-founder and president of Dream Big Health. Dream Big Health is a consultancy in the healthcare domain with expertise in such areas as value-based contracting, coding strategies, predictive health, and much more. Holly, welcome to the Tate Chronicles. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your clients and um, what do you do for your clients? So with Dream Big Health on the consultancy arm, we assist new biotech and molecular diagnostic companies in commercializing, helping to ensure that some of the latest and greatest technologies that's out there actually comes to light and enables some early patient access for some of these life-altering, potentially life-altering technologies. Well, um, I appreciate that. In my recent conversation with you, uh, when I met you, Holly, at the Vive Conference in Nashville, it was obvious we both share a deep interest in clinical decision support. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Uh, and in particular, uh, get feedback from you uh, based on your deep work in clinical decision support. So first, let me give a Webster's Dictionary of clinical decision support rules I found. Clinical decision support rules are tools that assist healthcare providers in making well-informed decisions about patient care and that they integrate patient-specific information with evidence-based guidelines. Um, and of course, the definition of evidence-based guidelines, that uh, can be a very gray area. So uh, first, um, how did you get interested in clinical decision support, and what do you think some of the areas uh, where there are real advantages to the use of it? Yeah, so I actually got into clinical decision support because I began drafting some of the first technical specifications for the requirements of clinical decision support tools and EHRs and electronic clinical quality measures when the HITECH Act came out. Mm -hmm. um, I saw a lot of physician burden added at the same time, um, just from being able to design some of those modules and create the usability around them, and then also have to draft some of the, the training materials around it and coach some of the providers who were starting to implement it very early on, um, and then realize that some of these tools, these clinical decision rules and support tools can start to assist in removing some of that administrative burden and assisting with providing guidance around some of the evidence-based information that we have out there, such as the guidelines and supporting that and providing that education to the provider and the patient during the clinical workflow. One of the questions I was gonna ask you, you uh, already mentioned there, um, training and appropriate use. How necessary is that for providers? Well, it depends on the usability of the clinical decision support tool um, that's sure. being implemented. So, of course, the more intuitive you can make it, the easier it's going to be to implement it. But there's always going to be some sort of training around it, even if it's just getting the provider used to the adoption of it and incorporation of it into their current clinical workflow. Um, hopefully, the automation portions of it and the intuitiveness of it help reduce some of the need for that training around it, but there's always going to be some training that's required with it. You know, one thing that I've noticed, Holly, in uh, over 400 EMRs that 
um, I've worked with going through certification. Uh, of course, to have a ONC certified base EHR, you have to have a clinical decision support module. And part of that is a requirement that in some way, the provider has to be alerted when a rule is triggered. And I imagine you've seen all over the board how rules, they're either pop-ups or an icon different turns uh, different colors. So even the, the interface is a critical thing. What have you seen that you liked or what you haven't liked in terms of the interface and of the alert? Um, I would say that it's really important to prioritize different um, guidelines and recommendations that are popping up. So making sure you're using some sort of algorithm to create that prioritization in it so you don't create that alert fatigue for the provider. And one of the things that I really like is the customization ability of it. If you want to start to automate some of the clinical decision roles that we're creating right now, allows for in-network care collaboration and start to automate some of that messaging and engage patients with additional educational resources. So I, I really like it when you start to take a look at it from the entire healthcare ecosystem aspect of it, of how are we supporting the patient? How are we supporting the provider? How are we ensuring that flow of communication, effective communication? And then also how are we using care collaboration to make sure that we're getting the recommendations, the resources, whatever we're trying to intervene in with those clinical decision roles over to the patient so it can actually affect the outcome of what we're trying to implement. One of the things that um, I'm aware of is I think probably the most uh, base level clinical decision support rule that everybody agreed was necessary was a, a medication allergies. Uh, to alert a provider if they were going to order medication the patient was allergic to, and then also medication to medication interaction. I think everybody agrees that those are, are critical. But in, in terms of more complex clinical decision support rules, maybe uh, somebody with a diagnosis of diabetes who has a hemoglobin A1C that's out of range or, or, or hypertension that's out of range and getting an alert, where do these rules come from? Who makes these rules? So a lot of them are required to be, as you know, based on evidence-based adopted clinical guidelines. Um, right now, I think it's important to start to focus on what's not necessarily being captured in some of the clinical guidelines. So I think this gets into a little bit of a gray area where we can start to really learn from what we have out there as far as evidence-based clinical guidelines, but also start to incorporate in what we know is affecting the actual patient outcome and utilize different weighted metrics within algorithms, AI algorithms behind clinical decision support tools to assist in finding areas where we don't necessarily have a great standard of care. Um, one of the clinical decisions, the first indication that Dream Big is actually starting with for clinical decision support tools and assistance with digital diagnostics is in adolescent mental health, where there's not a lot mm -hmm. there to contribute to what it is that we know is a problem. We, we've got the stats of suicide being the second leading cause of death in children ages 10 to 14 and the eighth leading cause of death in children 5 to 11. And there's obviously something that's missing. There's a gap there that we need to fill. So we can't just fully rely on the evidence-based clinical guidelines, but we have the technology now with web scraping tools to actually start to extract highly accurate, highly sensitive um predictors for what it is that we may help to proactively identify some of these adolescents who are suffering 
from these mental health disorders. And that would in turn require us to use things that are outside of those clinical guidelines. But it's important that we continuously monitor what the outcomes are and adjust and tweak as we go along. And then also continuously use some of those web scraping tools to, to make sure that we have the most up-to-date information possible, which isn't always in, as you know, some of those um, adopted guidelines that people are are using for the base clinical decision rules. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So um, that is a proactive approach, it uh, sounds like, to the development of, of these CDS rules, not just based on what was happening in the past, but what's happening now. And I, I'm kind of a corollary to what you were just talking about, adolescent uh, issues. We've just been through uh, two years of COVID isolation. Uh, and, um, you know, clinical decision support rules that were based on what was relevant five years ago, uh, obviously need to be updated. Yeah, unfortunately, everything was just exacerbated by COVID. Um, and some of the statistics that we already knew were happening are just getting worse and worse, specifically from that with, for example, I, I have some family, some friends who actually were starting college right at the beginning of COVID. So they're ending their high school. And then right when COVID hit was when they started college. And by the time COVID started mm -hmm. to ease up a little bit, they're a couple of years into college. And that was a huge transition um, for them. And it caused a lot of problems there. Um, so everything is just getting a little bit worse from that. But hopefully we can start to leverage what we know now and start to focus more proactively, as you were saying, on identifying some of these adolescents because of of everything that's happening around COVID and everything that was happening before it already. One of the really big issues right now um, we hear about all the time and is uh, equity in healthcare. And I guess uh, to me, I first became aware three or four years ago that a lot of clinical trials that were being done were based on trial participants of Western European descendants. And so is there any thought that clinical, you know, equity and clinical decision support rule development, is that, you know, how does that get teased out? So I've actually hosted a couple of webinars on this, on just the mitigation of algorithmic bias and mm. AI machine learning algorithms, um, not specifically to clinical decision support tools, but it's obviously a huge consideration, is making sure that you're training the model on the patient population that it's intended to be used in. And I think it's really important throughout the beginning, at least of the development of the, the clinical decision support tools that we're creating, is to run a lot of feasibility functionality studies and ensuring that we have it marked and indicated who the patient population was that it's trained on, but also ensuring that we're incorporating the training across diverse patient populations. I know one of the focuses that um, I believe in pretty strongly is not only just making sure we have diverse patient populations, but focusing on those that are underserved and really needed. So I do want to run some feasibility studies and train the algorithms on different patient populations in the South where there may be resource restrictions specifically around gender affirmation issues, because we know that that's going to be, mm. I believe that's going to be a pretty big issue moving forward as well for a lot of adolescents. So just ensuring that we look at this through an equitable lens and making sure that we are training on very diverse patient populations and then incorporating things like federated learning. So it's continuously updating based on the patient population that's utilizing 
those algorithms to ensure that we're helping address specific interventions and sp specific areas that are subject to sometimes that bias outside of those patient populations. So making sure that we incorporate every perspective across the board in a lot of different regions is, is super important. You know, that, that phrase, um, you use algorithmic bias. That's that's a pretty scary phrase uh, because uh, it implies, and I think accurately implies, that the bias is not an accident. It's actually a feature of the system. It's built into the system. Um, and just in the last few years, have we started to hear about that uh, uh, in, in many domains and cer certainly in, in healthcare. Um, let's talk some more about some of the advantages of clinical decision support. Um, I guess one of them might be uh, standardization of care. You get more consistent, you know, uh, platform of response to what a patient, you know, brings to the table. Yeah, so one thing that I think is important to, to take a look at, too, is making sure that we're incorporating standardized, structured, patient-reported outcomes. I know that specifically with mental health and adolescent mental health, a lot of scales and systems that are being used to screen are, one, paper-based, um, and two, have a ton of variability in what information is being gathered and how that information is being used and applied. I think by not only utilizing clinical decision support roles to help kind of standardize and reduce some of that variability, but ensuring that we're adopting standardized, structured, patient-reported outcomes and digitalizing some of those questionnaires using clinical quality language, interoperable language, in order to actually combine that with what we're getting from some of the digitalized scales and some of the information from the electronic health records across disparate systems and utilizing all of that in a whole um, to give some of those evidence-based recommendations and guidance to physicians. And then I think if we look at it from that perspective, then yes, we're removing a lot of the variability, but we're also doing it in a very safe way for the patient, not, um, not disregarding or, or leaving some of what we're currently doing in clinical practice, like utilizing paper forms and whether or not we're getting the correct answers that's leading to the correct outcomes or the correct interventions or recommendations. Um, but making sure that we're we're actually incorporating it in a very standardized way. So I think clinical decision support roles and the incorporation of standardized patient reported outcomes is going to be really, really helpful in reducing some of that variability and overall just improving patient outcomes and provider experiences. Let me say to our audience, if you're just joining this episode, I'm Jim Tate. On this episode of the Tate Chronicles, I'm speaking with Holly Barnell, co-founder and president of Dream Big Health. Holly, in the last few years, uh, as I mentioned earlier, for a certified base EHR, there's a, choir, a requirement to have a clinical decision support module, for lack of a, be a better sense, uh, that would uh, that allows a provider or some designated person to uh, create rules based on demographics or uh, or, or clinical data, uh, things like that, um, as well as provide for the provider, a bibliographic reference as to where the rule came from. Uh, whether it was meaningful use or promoting interoperability, there is uh, no requirement for anybody, for providers, uh, to uh, respond to a rule, to document if they ignore the rule, or even if a rule ever fired. So it, it sounds like 
we are getting the plumbing in place, uh, but it's always going to be up to the provider to decide what to do with the alert. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, I think we have to keep um, that in there. Obviously, we want to make sure that we have the clinical opinion of the provider and we have the overall focus coming directly from that medical experience of the provider. But I do think that some of the the bigger adoption issues that I've seen, at least with consulting some of this from the very early years of it, is creating additional burden for the provider. And I think by doing that, we're pushing away the this great opportunity to actually assist them with removing some of that administrative burden. And as long mm -hmm. as we start to incorporate in some of those automation features and making sure that we're using good bi bibliographic references and showing those evidence-based recommendations and then monitoring at the same time and reporting back to the providers what the outcomes are and how they're continually evolving from the use of some of those clinical decision support roles and recommended, recommended therapeutic or non-therapeutic interventions. I think we can help to increase the adoption of it. So I do think it's a, a good thing that we have the ability um, to not force, obviously, that upon clinicians because we want to make sure that their medical judgment is at the top of the tier and actually applying some of these decisions. But I think we have a great opportunity with some of the interoperability features that we have open now to, to support clinicians and improve the adoption of some of these roles. One of the things that um, hopefully no longer exists, but, but certainly did at one time, was uh, the ability for commercial reasons for EHRs to use clinical decision support rules that had been generated basically by a pharmaceutical company. Best example of this may be Practice Fusion, which received kickbacks for using a, a, a rule alert that uh, promoted the use of opioids. I think they ended up paying a fine of $145 million. And, uh, you know, the transparency of where these rules are, are, are coming from, uh, hopefully the whole industry um, has moved way beyond that. That was pretty shocking when that happened. Uh, you know the the com the commercialization and monetization uh, as a, of of rules as opposed to outcomes cl clinical outcomes. So yeah, I uh, think with um, I was just going to add in there with the the new proposal that's come out, the transparency that they're trying to enact around what some of the algorithms are and what they're promoting is going to be incredibly important moving forward. You know, um, also. Uh, uh, some of the things, you know, you touched on training earlier. We talked about that. But uh, the need, a particular rule on a, a situation based on diagnosis or medication or, or vital signs may be appropriate in one setting, but in another setting, it, it may not be. And so it sounds like there should always be, in, in the best possible world, the ability to perform some type of customization to the specific needs and workflows of a, of a broader organization. Do you think we're moving in the right direction rather than one size fits all and, you know, for a particular rule? I think it's really important to have features for population health management. So you can, and I think it's something that is going to be very, very important in the development of some of the algorithms that we're creating at Dream Big Health with the clinical decision support tools, but ensuring that the algorithm behind it is learning on the intended patient population that's being used for each system is going to be really important. So 
I do like the fact that we can use clinical decision support systems to standardize at least some sort of features around this is we're screening this way. Um, we're identifying certain interventions. We know what the outcomes can be. This is what we're trying to move towards, but making sure that we are using it in a fashion that's very specific to certain patient populations. And we can do that by training the models towards the system that's actually utilizing those clinical decision support roles, which I think is incredibly important moving forward. Holly, at Dream Big Health, how do you decide what rules to work on? Do clients come to you and, and ask for help or do you just follow an area of interest? How do you decide where and, and how to work specifically? rules. Yeah, so it's actually kind of interesting. So most of our clients, we don't incorporate a lot of the same aspects of what we're trying to do, at least from a health IT company from a development standpoint. Mm -hmm. So for the clients, we assist them with whatever they need in order to commercialize their newest, latest, greatest technologies from a completely separate side with our clinical decision support interventions. We believe strongly in focusing on underserved areas, um, and we initially started out looking at and getting endorsed clinical quality measures for maternal health, looking at proactive measures for prenatal complications, specifically around preterm birth, and then shifting over to adolescent mental health, just knowing some of the, the critical areas and what's happening out there right now, especially after COVID. Um, so it really just depends on where we think we can make a difference and we focus on actual improved outcomes and interventions around that and it's mm -hmm. just taking one bite of the elephant at a time and trying to find <laughs> you know some of these huge areas that need so much assistance and starting with you know maternal health in the beginning and then migrating over to actually developing cognizant dx which is the clinical decision support system for adolescent mental health we only have about five more minutes. I want to get to a couple more topics quickly. One thing that, that worries me somewhat is that uh, the rules may be uh, relevant and time-tested, but if the data the rule is run against is not accurate, the alerts may be spurious, to say the least. Uh, I, I'll give an example. Of, and, of course, uh, we're in the stages of the TEFCA rollout, the network of networks. So uh, a provider may be in their EHR and push a button and data may come in. Uh, and some of that data may not be accurate. Uh, a perfect example is somebody who wants to be prescribed a, a weight reduction uh, medication that's, you have to have a diagnosis of diabetes, side effect is, is weight loss. And so if we get an insurance to pay for it, the provider may have to give them a diagnosis of diabetes. So if that comes in and triggers an alert, it's based on the quality of that data. So I always have a concern about the quality of that data coming in, even if the even if the rule, you know, is is just so well documented and accurate. So uh, that's something that's just going to have to be worked out over over time, and and the provider, uh, you know, having the final decision over any alert whatsoever, rather than just follow follow them blindly. Uh, before we totally run out of time, if folks want to know uh, how to get in contact with you, Holly, or learn more about your company, what's the best way to get in contact? Yeah, so you can reach um, us or myself personally at holly.varnell, H-O-L-L-Y dot V as in Victor, A-R-N-E-L-L, -L, at Dream Big Health, 
dreambighealth.org or visit dreambighealth.org website. There's ways to message through there. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn and always happy to connect those ways as well. You, you mentioned some webinars. Are those available anywhere to see on YouTube or? They, they are. So there are several webinars on um, the dreambighealth.org okay. website and then also under Dream Big Health's LinkedIn webpage. Great. Well, to our audience, thanks for joining me on this episode of The Take Chronicles. And I offer a special salute to my guest today, Holly Varnell of Dream Big Health. Holly, thanks for coming aboard today. Thanks for having me, Jim. You can find more information on this show on this show's program page at healthcarenowradio.com. Until we meet again, here's wishing you smooth sailing and safe harbors. Tape Chronicles transmission ending now.